and you know, I've not, I would say in six and a half years since I've, I've not worked today. Uh, it's been a, a lot of fun to, to call your passion, uh, your profession. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to the latest edition of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with a good friend of mine, Kyle Schlegel. Kyle and I know each other going way back to Miami University, Procter & Gamble, and I've been wowed with his career that he's had since then. So, Kyle, thank you for coming. Dave, thank you very much. uh, I'm always... Uh, blown away by everything that you're doing and uh, adding a podcast to the mix is seems like the natural next step as well. I'm a glutton for punishment. What can I say? So makes it fun that way. Sure. Well, I want to start off talking about your story because you have one of those careers and those stories that I think is an inspiration to anybody that wants to follow their heart. So can you tell us how did you go from Procter & Gamble brand manager to working for some of the most iconic sports brands in the world? Uh, sure. I, um, I've always been a sports fan. I've always been an athlete my whole life. Uh, if I think back to my childhood, the, the memories that stand out the most somehow involved a, a bat and a ball and um, you know the driveway and a hoop. And so it was always about the minute I left the office, sports was a big part of that. And then I think over time, the more I worked at, at P&G, the more I realized that I was creating passion. I was passionate about the brands that I worked on, but it wasn't my passion. And so it became more and more about how do I marry sports and this love that I have for sports with the things that I'd learned at P&G and, and my career. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, faith is another big part of my life. And there's no other description other than this was a God thing. Uh, I kept trying to schedule a, a meeting with a mentor and it kept getting rescheduled for all the P&G scheduling reasons that, that happened. And we finally got it on the calendar. And the first question he asked me at lunch was, what do you want to do? He said, I can tell based on the way you scheduled it, you're, you're thinking about leaving P&G. What is it you want to do? I said, man, that, this, this sports world and, and this work world, how do I bring it together? And he had literally gotten a phone call that morning about a job at Louisville Slugger, leading and creating the, uh, the marketing department at Louisville Slugger. And he wasn't interested, asked if I was, and uh, my resume was on the desk of the president by the end of the day. So it was, it was certainly fate, I would say, and a, a little bit of faith to, that brought those two worlds together. And I, you know, I've not, I would say in six and a half years since, I've, I've not worked a day. Uh, it's been a, a lot of fun to to call your passion uh, your profession. That's wonderful. And what took you from Slugger to now Wilson? That one's a little simpler. Uh, Louisville Slugger was acquired by Wilson Sporting Goods. Uh, had the opportunity to be on the deal team at, at Slugger. So that was a lot of fun to meet all the potential suitors for the brand. But ultimately, Wilson just seemed like the perfect fit. It fit the equity of the brand. It fit the kind of the family nature of what Louisville Slugger was and is. And so it was a natural next step. I was in that limbo for a little while of, do you go with Wilson? Do you go do your own thing? And yeah, they, uh, uh, I guess, afforded me the opportunity to lead marketing for the biggest business, um, which is racket sports at Wilson, and also the most global, which has always been a, a passion of mine. Uh, so I, uh, I jumped at the opportunity and our family moved to Chicago uh, with the role. Perfect. Well, let's dive into that uh, world of sports. Mm -hmm. So sports are probably the oldest industry out there, going back (laughs) centuries to the earliest cave drawings. So when you look at that, every industry has been impacted by technology, though, Mm -hmm. and sports is no exception. So what have you seen in terms of how technology has changed the world that you've been in over the last few years? Yeah, I, uh, we actually had global meetings in Greece earlier this year, and I had the opportunity to go to the original Olympic Stadium. And so as you were saying that, yeah. it was like, 
the stadiums don't look that different, really, right? <laughs> right? So, uh, but uh, yeah, I would say it's it's changed a lot lately. I, I would say the biggest driver of change that we see is literally on the commerce side of how do consumers engage in literally the, the purchasing of a product and what's expected in that moment. The days of, you know, going to the, 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 you know, the local pro shop at your club, those still certainly exist and there needs to be that one-to-one connection. But the, you know, just the sheer side of the assortment and the availability of, of services and the, nights, the nature of products, we're finding that that's shifting quickly, very quickly to the e-commerce side of things. And so I would say that's, that's one major change. And then the way we engage with consumers, they have an expectation of both a physical and a digital relationship with the brand. You know, social media is, the, I would say, the most obvious version of that. But we're also trying to build in communities now where we can engage with fans and, and consumers of the brand well beyond you know, the one-hour demo event they might come to with us um, on court. We're also looking at you know packaging and manufacturing, which sounds weird coming from a marketer, um, but there's a lot of time that we're spent uh, talking about that and, and meeting with potential partners that can help us really explore new ways uh, in that space to connect with consumers. Very cool. And when you look at changes, you know the other thing that goes in with sporting goods as a whole is this heavy reliance on celebrities, endorsers, you know, Wilson and Roger, you can't separate it, <laughs> yeah. Jordan and Nike. It's tough to even separate those brands from those people. So how has that changed over the last few years as celebrities become not necessarily a controlled image, but one that's shared on social media and is 24-7? We love it because I think the fans and the media, for that matter, are now seeing the authentic version of who the athlete is. You know, we, we go to shoots every year with, you know, Roger Federer, Serena Williams, Grigor Dimitrov, names that roll off the tongue, certainly for tennis fans, but sports fans in general. And the person that we see at the shoot when the camera's not running, the person that we see in the green room that we're hanging out with before an event is the person that the fan now sees. And if you go back a generation to the Sampras's and the Couriers of the world, I don't necessarily know that the, the, the public ever got to see the real version of who that person was. And so technology has certainly enabled that where, you know, through social media, they, they truly project who they are. I mean, Federer, half of his, po- or half of his tweets are a, a collection of emojis with no words. So <laughs> he certainly feels comfortable being himself in that medium, which bleeds over to when he's at a press conference and these athletes are now in front of the media. There's already a public version of themselves out there that's truly them, which empowers them to be that same person when they're in front of the press, that same person when they're at an event. Um, so I think it's amazing for fans today who, especially younger fans who are looking for authenticity from their heroes, um, that they, I think they truly get to know the hero now versus there was always this distant relationship. And, you know, I get asked every time I meet somebody and I explain what I do, the first question they ask is what's Roger like when the camera's not on? He's exactly like when the camera is on, which I think is, is really powerful. That's awesome. So we're here at the Brandemonium Conference in Cincinnati, and you're going to be taking the stage later to talk about partnerships and talk about what you've learned working with Roger and everything else that Wilson does. Today in business, partnerships have become much broader than just that. It's partnering with technology companies, with startups, with retailers and others. What lessons have you learned from working with celebrities and doing the partnerships in sports that can be reapplied into the world of other partnerships for marketers? I, I would say uh, um, mutual interest is, uh, is something that comes to mind. You know, from our Procter & Gamble days, I think back to the relationships we had, which were powerful from a, an external standpoint, 
but I wouldn't say we had a relationship with a lot of those partners. It was, it was a monetary relationship, whether it was with an agency or a brand ambassador or, you know, a, a collaborator. It was very much, yeah, it was, it was monetarily driven. And as I've moved to the sports field, it's so relationship driven. A deep relationship with the athletes and with our partners is so critical to the success. Is there cash involved? Yes, of course. Yeah. But we found that we're much more successful when we know each other's last names and first names and we know each other, whether we have children or not and whether our children are into sports. It's that next layer that I think makes a big difference today versus before. And then finding that mutual interest, uh, you know, if, if again, we go back to our P&G days, it was about what the brand needed. It wasn't always necessarily finding that middle ground between what the brand and the partner needed. Yep. Uh, and so we've spent a lot of time, even in the last year doing collaborations, we just did a whole apparel line with Forever 21, which you wouldn't necessarily think of Wilson and Forever 21 working together, but there was a mutual consumer, there was a mutual interest, a mutual, you know, touchstone from a lifestyle standpoint that we found together. And there was a lot of success that came out of that. I think that would have been very different had it been driven by one party's agenda um, rather than both. Yep. And so, you know, even to the technology side, uh, you know, as we look to find partners, it's about exactly to your point, finding those startups. It's about a lot of times they're looking for proof of concept and credibility for what they're doing. Wilson can provide that and the skill that they bring or the, the, the widget or the whatever they've developed, right? is a big help to to Wilson as well. And so it's about finding those those mutual relationships. So you talked about retail and commerce being mm -hmm. such a change that's happened because mm -hmm. of technology. You've seen that in the sporting good industry with Sports Authority and other major partners mm -hmm. disappear overnight. Yeah. So how are you thinking about shifting that role of relying on the pro shops, relying on your traditional retail, but then going direct to consumer? and new ways to connect with the people that are ultimately using your products. The last two or three years have been pretty eye-opening at Wilson in that regard. And in 2017 alone, Wilson Sporting Goods collectively lost over 1,500 points of distribution in the U.S. alone. Wow. A big part of that was Sports Authority, um, but there were many others as well. And so direct-to-consumer is a given. We have to do that really, really well. And it's not just about having the product for sale. There's a huge service component that goes with that. When a consumer buys a tennis racket online, they're expecting that it's gonna be strong as they want it to be strong. They're expecting to receive it in 48 hours. They're expecting to be able to talk to a knowledgeable person on the other end of whether it's you know a chat room online or on the phone that can help them through that process. So it's not, we're not an item merchant, it's, it's a true service. And I would say, you know, a year or two ago when we ran an ad somewhere and it said, um, you know, it said buy now, immediately I had retailers calling me livid that Wilson was going direct to consumer and the number of conversations we had to have to, okay, calm down, calm down. We're not trying to steal your cheese, right? Um, we're trying to provide a service to the athletes and the, and the consumers that are out there. And, and I think we found a middle ground on how we can work together. Um, we now co-invest with some of our online partners uh, in our marketing campaigns because we're, we truly have the same goal. We want to get the right piece of Wilson equipment in this case yep. into the right hands of the, of the consumer and have that journey be a productive one for the consumer. Uh, and so we're combining forces on a lot of those things now. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company 
that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. How do you have to change you as a marketer when you do that? Because the world we grew up with in P&G, as long as we got them to Walmart or to Target or to the retailer, we knew the conversion was done. They'd take care of the rest. Yeah. But you're talking about customer service and sales and shipping and everything else. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Uh, uh, slowly. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to say we have the uh, the magic bullet right now. And, and admittedly, we don't. We learn every single day in that process. We don't sell commodities, uh, maybe outside of tennis balls. A $250 or $300 racket purchase is, uh, is not taken lightly. And so, you know, where, you know, the P&G days, it was certainly about the full purchase journey. I would say I spend more time on the consideration and conversion steps than I ever thought I would, um, you know, coming from the experience at Procter & Gamble. It was, it was very much about the top of the funnel there. How do we make people aware of this product? I'm blessed to have worked for Louisville Slugger and Wilson now where awareness isn't necessarily the challenge. We've got a longstanding both 100-year brands. So it's more about that consideration and conversion step. And for us, that literally means boots on grounds. It means, you know, you got your tennis shoes on and you're standing on a tennis court and you're engaging one-to-one with a consumer. And I don't say that as hyperbole. We literally do that every single day. And so for me, I think that's been the major change. Technology enables us to stay in touch with that consumer over time, but technology doesn't replace the face-to-face, I'm handing a racket and putting it in your hand. We have a new innovation coming out in February, which is, I would say, the most innovative racket introduction in, in more than a decade in the industry. And we know that we could spend all day long and every dollar we have creating awareness for that. But if, if the racket doesn't ultimately end up in somebody's hand, it will have been for naught. And so I would say almost everything we're doing for that launch is about that moment. It's not about shop now, buy now. It's about try now. It's about getting them onto a tennis court somewhere where we can create an environment that we can control, but also be open to, to their reaction to the product. And uh, so I, I would say that's a, that's a major shift versus you know, what I was doing six, seven years ago. Yeah, without doubt. So one of the other things technology brings is new competition, emergent brands. And I know you dealt with that quite a bit in the world of Slugger. Mm -hmm. How do you think about emerging brands and the opportunities they see in the market? How do you respond to those? Yeah, uh, I would say this is our biggest challenge right now. Each time my general manager and I get together, one of the questions that we kind of uh, bounce around the room is, if we were just starting a racket brand today, what would that look like, yeah. right? With, without the preconceived notions or, or barriers or constructs that exist for, for the brand and, and our distribution channels today, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we evolve to that? How do we introduce pieces of that? It's not going to be student body right and we suddenly act like the new entrant, but how can we borrow some of those concepts? And I know this is obviously near and dear to your heart and the, and the idea of disruption. We've actually spent a lot of time you know, in Silicon Valley and, and with other partners lately we took our entire leadership team last year to Silicon Valley, and we've done something similar this year in Chicago, where we exposed ourselves to you know a curated list of of startups that are that are disrupting other industries, and how do we learn from those? I know that this is uh, potentially trite, but it's red ocean, blue ocean conversations. Mm-hmm. It's 
who moved my cheese <laughs> at a leadership offsite. Recently, we, we took an hour break and everybody read the book, Who Moved My Cheese, and really thought about which character are we in this book right now as a brand, as an individual, as a leader. And so I would say that we're, we're not to the final answer yet, but we know that to be a little bit better than Babolat or a little bit better than Head or Prince at what the industry demands today will not mean that we're around five years from now, 10 years from now. So a lot of it is about yeah, this back to that question of if if we were just starting, what would this company look like? What would distribution look like? What would the the organization structure look like? I love that. So you know, relate to that. You know, in your time at Wilson and Slugger, you've been fortunate enough to work with some of the most historical brands, literally in sports, if not the world. Mm. How do you take that heritage and respect the past, but also mm. use it to build upon the future and not let it be an anchor that ties you down? Yeah, I would say this is a really fun challenge for us right now. We're going through a, a purpose journey at Wilson for tennis specifically right now and trying to identify what is that balance. You know, when I got to, to Louisville Slugger, the, there's tons of history there and it's incredible. But I think we were probably relying a little too much on the history being the benefit, right? The, the reason for, for buying the product was because Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron and Ken Griffey Jr. used it over time. That's not necessarily who the 18-year-old consumer is influenced by today. And so it is a delicate balance. I, ironically, Wilson's been around 104 years and it's the youngest company I've worked for, <laughs> the youngest brand I've worked on. And so a lot of what we're looking back at right now is what got us to today and how do we take those things that got us to today um, and celebrate those things without using them as a crutch, without using them as the reason for buying the product. You know, we made a series of decisions over 104 years, a series of innovations and launches, a series of, or a, a culture that we built up over time. How do we celebrate those things and acknowledge those things, but use it as a way to communicate the credibility of what we're doing today? Hmm. Makes sense. Hmm. So shifting gears a little bit, um, to you as a CMO, a marketing leader, we have to evolve ourselves as we think about our careers and what we're hmm. doing. How do you approach that personal development and making sure that you're staying on top of things so you can teach the people that work for you what they should be doing and where they should be going? Well, podcasts, obviously. <laughs> uh, and great books. Uh, and great books, obviously. Uh, there, were, there was a moment for me as I left P&G and I got to Louisville Slugger that was definitely an aha. I would say that I got, admitting it out loud stuff, but I would say I got lazy. I got complacent. Because um, in a company like Procter & Gamble, there's, there's groups that their entire role is to curate what's going on outside and, and put that into packaged forms for the marketers to go do, right? There was a yep. quarterly training and it was, here's what's happening in, in digital today. Here's how to apply it to your brand. And so I lost some of that curiosity of going out and learning those things on my own. And when I got to Louisville Slugger, I, I, you know, I called you and I called some other mentors and said, what is it? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to be talking to? What conferences do I need to go to? And I've kind of built that over time to what is that set of things? Um, for me, there's three or four podcasts that I listen to multiple days a week that give me that little push to, to explore something new. It's coming to conferences like this at Brandomonium and, and being genuinely curious about what's happening. I've been, I probably went to conferences in the past and it was about being present and, you know, great, I get to speak or whatever it might be. I'm looking at the agenda for this and I'm like, there's butterflies in my stomach because I'm excited about some of the things that I see being discussed and thinking already before I even go, 
based on the headline alone of that that talk, like what could that mean for Wilson? How do we apply that? And so I say I would say I have an energy now that maybe I didn't have in my last few years at, at PNG on just the curiosity of learning, and it's changing so fast, right? The brand framework is the same, um, largely the path to purchase is the same, but what happens at each step is so different. Yep. And so a lot of it is also listening to the younger generation in the office. There was an Ad Age article that I think the headline initially offended me when I, when I saw it a few years ago, which was our generation, it, it, it referred to us as digital posers. And I, you, know, you read the headline and you get a little offended by yeah. that. And I went, oh, wait, as I dug a little deeper, it was talking about there's obviously digital, digital natives that are younger than me. And there are parents of digital natives that are older than me. And I'm in that middle ground where I didn't grow up in a digital world and my daughter is seven years old. And so she's not necessarily driving my digital world yet. Yep. Uh, and so that was an aha for me as well. Of I can't fake my way through this. I can't use the the headlines and the and the buzzwords and 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 have that work. I need to go roll up my sleeves and and uh, and go learn for it uh, on my own, and then teach those on my team, but also make sure that I'm allowing my team to teach me. So curiosity was a really interesting point that you brought up there, and. Mm-hmm. You talked about your team going off to Silicon Valley, but Wilson also just moved to downtown Chicago, which is this great startup community going on with the Merch Mart and the rise of venture capital funds there. How are you thinking about using your own backyard to your advantage as you think about that learning for the company? I think the perfect example is what we did in 17 versus 18. 17 was about working with a partner that was based in Silicon Valley that took our business challenges and put a list together of who we needed to meet while we were out there. And we, and we did that. And it was great. There's a couple of people that we're working with now based on that trip. As we, it was automatically assumed that in 2018, we were going to go back out there. We were going to re-meet with some other, some folks that we had already met with and, you know, a list of new folks. And I think all of us sat around a table and just said, wait a second, (laughs) this is happening right here in Chicago. We don't need to board a plane. We don't need to, you know, pay for somebody to curate that. We can do this right here in our own backyard. And so we've started to do that. Some of it is through the natural relationships that exist between our leadership team members and those in the community. Yeah. And so there's you naturally come across startups or new businesses in that way. I would say we're now trying to see, not to institutionalize it necessarily, but how do we create that on an ongoing basis that, hey, maybe nobody in the room knows what's happening in a certain sector right now. How do we find those things? So I would say that's the next step of what we're doing, but exactly your question it was assumed a year ago that we would go to Silicon Valley for a week every summer, and that would be part of our leadership team's strategy development. And uh, we don't need to do that. There, there's great stuff happening in our backyard. So what gave you the confidence of that? Because that's the one thing I see some of the Fortune 500 sometimes fall down on is, well, I know Silicon Valley has it going on. Do I know enough to know that Cincinnati or Chicago or Minneapolis is it the high enough quality there? So what gave you guys the confidence to do that? I mean, I would say credit to you as well on, on the brandery here in Cincinnati. Uh, through our relationship, I've gotten to be exposed to brand fusion and, and some of the other things that you've done at the brandery when I lived here and shortly after leaving. And you know, if, uh, you know, what you've developed and what, what has been developed here in Cincinnati was part of what gave me great confidence in really no matter where you are, that's happening in our backyard, yep. right? And it, as long as it's being nurtured in the right way and being directed in the right way, um, which it is here in Cincinnati, it is in Chicago, and obviously it is in, in Silicon Valley. I think those are experiencing those things firsthand here in Cincinnati gave me the confidence in Chicago that the same thing is happening. 
And, you know, a couple of ex-Proctor friends of mine were in that world in Chicago as well. And so there's a trust factor that, that comes with that. I know they're super smart people and they're doing really interesting things and they're choosing to do it in Chicago, which gave me confidence as well. Great. Well, yeah. thank you for the compliments on that. Yeah. So final question for you. Yeah. What do you see as the biggest opportunities for the next five years as you think about yourself as a leader, your business, and just the business community as a whole? What's getting you excited? Well, I, you know, the first keynote today was about the age of disruption being changed to the age of bravery. Mm-hmm. And I would say, uh, am I brave enough? Uh, that's one of the things that I want to challenge myself with. Uh, you know, I, I would say on and off the court, certainly, but in the office, especially, we know the this industry is changing. We know that we need to change because the industry is changing. Mm-hmm. Are we willing to do those things? Um, there's every reason in the world not to change how we distribute product, how we use influencers. You know, the age old, hey, Federer and Serena are amazing. They're not going to play forever. And as much as we'd like to believe it, there's probably not a Federer and Serena coming right behind them. They're, they're one of a kind. Are we brave enough to change the way we think about the tour and the role of tour and our athletes? Are we brave enough to think differently about how we engage with our markets around the world um, and it not be a Western model that we apply everywhere else? So the word brave is triggered certainly this morning, but keeps coming back to me in my mind of we know we need to change. Are, are we brave enough to, to make the change? Thank you, Kyle. That's a great point to end on. And I know you've inspired this audience in the same way you've always inspired inspired me. So thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, Dave. Anytime. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com. 